Hey, welcome to a very special edition of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And I say it's special because we are not only recording our regular podcast as we normally do, but we're going live on Bullhorn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this is, I mean, it's just made our lives a bit more complicated, but this is cool. I And you it, made me the engineer, so uh, I'm doing all the homework here. Cool. I mean, you know, that's great <laughs> uh, for me, actually. But um, <laughs> bullhorn.fm is, is a new platform that we're testing out. It's live. So if you want to take part in a .NET Rocks live from now on, you got to go to bullhorn.fm slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S and follow us and then get the app if you want to be on your phone or you can be on your computer or your smart TV or whatever, right? So so do that and then you'll get notified when we go live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just spent the last half hour or more actually just sort of figuring things out. I know we took we got the demo from the guys at Bullhorn, but we're, we, we think we're ready to go now. Are you ready to go, Richard? There's no substitute for actually getting down to the moment with a guest, all of our tools in place and saying, okay, how do we make all this stuff cooperate? Right. And uh, we'll get to our guest in a minute, Richard Rukama. But before we bring him on, we have this little thing we like to do called Better Know a Framework. Okay, and for the people that are out there watching live... There's a chat window that you can just uh, chat with us. And if you want to ask a question, you will be able to with through the app. Just ask a question. That differentiates the chatter from the actual question. Okay? Right. Yeah, we're, yeah, so we're, we we're still happy. learning. You can chat in the chat window. But if you really got a question, ask it in the question window, and we'll make sure we get it to Richard. Yes. Okay. My Better Know Framework is one of my other podcasts, and it's very timely right now. It's Security This Week at securitythisweek.com. Now, this is Patrick Hines and Dwayne LaFlotte, who both work for a security company as professional hackers. These are guys you probably know, well, you'd probably know Patrick, because he was the first guest on .NET Rocks and the first guest on... Run as Radio. Run as radio. That's yeah, right. He's sort of our he's our uh, our happy talisman, right? Like it's, you you have to christen a show with a Pat Hines. Exactly. He's 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 a veteran and a security expert, so he he understands geopolitics as well as you know military matters as well as hacking. So right now, with all of the stuff that's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and all these hacking groups getting involved in hacking each other. It's it's like this giant Star Wars thing where, you know, this alliance against that alliance and there's the physical war, yes, but the cyber war is mega interesting right now. You know, Anonymous like took over Russia's TV, uh, state TV and started uh, publishing footage of the war because before that it was uh, just, you know, Russian propaganda. Like all of this great stuff is happening, and we're talking about it on Security This Week. So securitythisweek.com, that's it. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, I grabbed a comment off show 1709, the one we did back in October of 2020 with Mike Richter when we were talking about moving .NET applications into Azure. And, you know, ongoing conversations certainly related to what we're talking to today and mm-hmm. talking about, Things like app service 
And our old friend Thomas Betts chimed in. Thomas knows Thomas has plenty of copies of uh, of music to code by. But I thought his ta- comment was very timely. He says, uh, having spent almost equal time working in both Azure and AWS, I have to say that the Azure App Service offering is underappreciated. AWS does not have anything that makes it so easy to take an on-prem web app or API and deploy it in the cloud. Even if you're developing something greenfield, the barrier to entry for running a new .NET Core web app in Azure is significantly less with Azure than with AWS. The argument for platform as a service over infrastructure service is very similar to what VB and .NET developers have known for decades. Being able to rapidly design, develop, deploy, and iterate on working software has huge benefits. AWS provides a data center in the cloud. Azure provides a platform for building solutions. While both have their merits, I prefer the lower cognitive load when building on Azure. And while I enjoy a good discussion about refactoring and architecting for cost savings, it can quickly become penny wise and pound foolish. How many developer weeks or developer months or developer years will you spend Mm -hmm. just to reduce your monthly bill? There are obviously many more factors to consider, such as reliability, observability, and scalability, and people need to make the right decision based on all of their needs. Now, mm, Thomas, yeah. if you're going to go around being adult supervision like this, we're not sending you another copy. Of this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The big thing I see with being efficient in the cloud, like reducing that cost, is it is a month over month thing. Like it's going to accumulate value. So you may spend some money doing it initially. But I also agree, just like performance tuning, there's a there's sort of diminishing returns here. Like over time, eventually, uh, you're not going to get any more for it. So it's not worth the effort for the additional tuning. But a little bit of thought goes a long way. And Thomas, uh, thanks so much for your comment. And a copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. No, it's not. You no, not you know on. what? We should send Thomas. <laughs> we should send Thomas a, a 20th anniversary .NET Rocks mug. Yeah, um, anybody Ooh. should get a 20th anniversary mug. It's Thomas Betts. Get yeah, let's give Thomas Betts one of those. So normally we'd send a Music to Code by, but for Thomas, he'll get a a very rare 20th anniversary .NET Rocks mug. But if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. You got to lift, shift, and separate. <laughs> Wait, wasn't that a bra commercial? Was I, a bra was a, I was a kid in Wonder the bra? 80s, you know. <laughs> Pretty sure that's Wonder Bra. <laughs> we have an entirely different lift show now. And separate. <laughs> and, and for the geriatrics, it's the bro, bro commercial. The, right? the bro. <laughs> it's the men's ear. <laughs> All right. Well, let me introduce that other voice that you heard, which is that of Richard Rukuma. Uh, his expertise is in creating or integrating software into a business value proposition. He has performed in many roles throughout his career, but remains focused on delivering an efficient and effective business process. He's the principal solution architect for Phoenix Business Solutions, which you can find at www.phoenixbussolutions.com. And also, a huge fan. Welcome, Richard. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's a, I have to say it's a bucket list item on my checklist to, oh, cool. to ha- be on the show. So I've, I've been listening. I, I looked at the other day. I got an email from Richard back in uh, 2012. There you go. When I got my first .NET mug rug. So wow. it's been over 10, 10 years, which is amazing to me. But anyways. Well, and, and those mugs are getting rare. Yeah. And now you get your more than 15 minutes of fame. 
<laughs> at least 40. Well, hopefully, hopefully I do. It could be 15 <laughs> minutes of being a fool too, right? Of infamy. I found the first email you ever sent me from 2007. Oh, five or more years. Ago. Yeah. Asking about where DNR TV is. There you go. Oh, yeah. boy. Wow. Gone. No Richard to be able to pull back history like that fast. Yeah. <laughs> Got, yeah, got TV gone. Tools. Well, I'm I'm very happy to be here, and I'm very interested in this topic. It's it's something that I think so many organizations are just not understanding today. Right, uh, and the topic is lift and shift is not enough. It's a a topic you guys came up with this title, um, just sort of beyond moving your Windows Forms app to or your Web Forms app to Azure. Um, it's not enough because the cloud offers so much beyond what we could do and what we could imagine we could do uh, in those years when we were building websites that were running in-house on IIS that mm-hmm. uh, that you need to take advantage of all this goo. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of architects are falling into a pattern of how we used to build applications when the data center was there and we had to have shared resources of infrastructure that's there, right? Like the IT organization was always in those data centers because they had to share the resources that were there and various departments had to share that resource Mm. to be able to have that one web server that had five different applications on it. And when we moved to the cloud, that business relationship always existed between IT operations and the business department. And when we moved to the cloud, we moved the servers to the cloud because that's what the IT organization managed was the servers. What the business, I think, is misaligned with is that the business wanted to move the application to the cloud, not the servers. And that, that, that's my, the basis of this, of this subject whole thing is like, how do you move the business to the cloud, not the app to the cloud? Hmm. Or how do you move the application to the cloud as opposed to just the servers and recreate this? application built on servers and i do think this is what thomas was talking about in the comment as well is that aws very much is that uh, that that infrastructure as a service just move your vms in the cloud we'll bill you for them now you don't have to own the hardware anymore yes i really see the difference i've been with azure for since service bus first came on as a service and the difference in the mentality was that aws moved vms to the cloud because that's what their that's what their bookstore was on and had excess yeah. capacity, right? And then Azure came in and they built from the services. And the two the, the two have both met in the middle now where AWS is trying desperately to bring up their platform services. And Azure had to go down to infrastructure as a service because these IT organizations, in my opinion, were so desperate to hang on to servers because they don't understand application development. I, I You know, it's funny working on the history of .NET forever. Uh, it has brought to light this idea that the original offering of Azure back in 2009, which you know, with the web role and the app role, I mean, they were basically offering a serverless before we knew we wanted it. Hmm. And, yeah. and they actually added the virtual machine support later because I think it's what people understood and were comfortable with. Yeah, we're still seeing it. And I always say to when I'm talking to an organization, I say, you do understand that these are VMs and the VMs are logical definitions of compute, right? There is no relationship to the underlying infrastructure that's running that that VM. And yet we still totally rely on the fact that the applications live on VMs. 
And now we have to start thinking about how can this application live on services over server? And I like to say serverless is not about servers. It's about thinking of servers less nice. in the application development world. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think there's sort of layers that you peel off here, right? Like owning, the, if you have a virtual machine, you're still responsible for the operating system. You've got to patch it. you got to do all those things. Like, I don't want to do any of that. Uh, app service takes that away. Like, you don't even know you're using a machine per se. It's just the service you're calling to. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it. Because even if, let's say, you go to cl- uh, Kubernetes, right? And you build out a Kubernetes platform. Underneath, you still got the VMs that support the cluster. And mm-hmm. you either have to support the VMs by patching them and updating them. Mm-hmm. Or you build what AWS calls this platform service where it'll patch the VMs underneath, but you're still stuck with the scalability of the VM granularity as opposed to what we could do with app service. And I always say, when you build an app service, don't build the size of the service on your load, but how much you want to do the incremental scale of that service. Because in my opinion, the cloud scale application can scale indefinitely. Right. But the steps in the scale can also be managed very carefully so that you have the scale out. And I think more importantly, the scale in, because if we're in an 18-6 business day, you want to be 16 hours of no cost and eight hours of cost. And that's where the main savings can be. Scale out and scale in or is it scale up and scale down, Richard? Well, yeah, yeah. okay. I don't like the up and down because I, whenever I think of scale out, I think of horizontal. Yes. Right? And scale up means I want to scale up in terms of the, the, um, the size of the machine. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that being said, I mean, I've, I've had the experience where you can definitely write an application where it doesn't matter how much Azure you throw at it, it can't handle any more users. Like the software design matters too. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think this is where my, advice is to most corporations when they come looking at for to, to move to the cloud. The most important one, in my opinion, anyways, is I understand you have applications that are built on servers, but do we have a business process that is void of the server implementation? Right? Is our application architecture sub- out, s- totally devoid of the actual machines and infrastructure that's required to support it. And there's so many architects, in my opinion, that when they start, th- this is how we've done it before. It's like relational mm-hmm. theory when you think of data, mm-hmm. right? You start thinking of data and you, th- you immediately fall into relational concepts and relational characteristics when really there's no SQL around. And the same thing happens at the application tier. You shouldn't be thinking about a web server when you're thinking about a web service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. And and just gives you more choice in that respect in that respect as well, uh, yeah. Th- it's hard to justify a lot of third normal form and stuff these days if you're not actually going to do any relational work with the data. You know, but- well, in, in terms of the agile process, though, the the ability to manage a schema through the application stack is a difficult job, right? It's like you if you've got a schema at the very bottom tier and you transfer that data up all the way to the application tier, when you change the piece of data, you've got to break your application layers. And I was just with an organization the other day where where I said, why don't you capture this volatility of your question and answers that they had and store that in a NoSQL type arena and then process that in the data feed back down to a to the reporting engine and more of their relational concepts to avoid that breaking of that 
that constant of those architectural layers. And they didn't get it. A couple of good comments from the chat window. Jeff Fritz stopped by. He says, even when you have serverless like Azure Functions, you need to control the number of functions instances created. Azure Functions can do a, de a distributed denial of service attack on your database with connection requests. Absolutely. It's the weakest link in the chain will always break. And, and that's where I think about concurrency all the time, all the time. And concurrency all the way through the stack, just not on the database layer. Right? You, the separation of the business process needs to be done in such a way that it's totally asynchronous and manage that level of concurrency. Yeah. Right? You've got to be able to scale out everywhere. Yeah, and I and I appreciate Dave, Dave Ackroyd's point that uh, you know if we're working in the cloud, we really don't care about operating systems anymore. .NET's made that easier for us too, right? If you're working in core, you're just firing it onto Linux because it consumes less resources and arguably runs faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean about when you're thinking, when you're architecting with a serverless mindset, you're thinking of the servers less. Right. Right. Uh -huh. And and if you do that. If you build your business process and your architecting of your application without the implementation of the infrastructure, it suddenly frees up that that mindset totally. But it's so hard for architect. Every architect I speak to, they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. And I'm like, mm. try it. Just try to think of the service, not the server right. that, that you're building on, and then worry about how you're going to provide that service down the line. It does strike me that Azure's done a better job of this. Like app service really abstracts you from all of that. And we did this show back with Guthrie ages ago where mm -hmm. he, when he got involved with Azure and he really focused on this, how do you pick up an IIS app or anything on-prem and put it into the cloud and effectively lose IIS in the process? Like it's, it's just a, a set of hooks. Do you, that, but that's a very lift, that that's very lift and shift, but at least it's not from virtual machine to virtual machine. It's going to run mm -hmm. better, wouldn't you think, Richard? Oh, I, well, if nothing else, it's much more tunable, right? Like right. you have to reboot that's your true. VM, but the Azure application, when you scale, that's the other, I think that's the other major, major thought process that people miss when they think about a cloud scale application is that you move the traffic to the production environment, not the software, mm -hmm. right? So if you're in a proper CI/CD pipeline that gives your business all the agility that it needs to be able to address new features and functionality, the CI/CD pipeline builds in an automated fashion the production world. And when ready, you move the traffic to that world. Right. And then let the old stuff be shut down. In the old days, I'd order a new set of gear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and, it took, and yeah. it took weeks going to azure in particular for me has been a learning curve throughout that um you know do simple things like create resource groups for new projects and use those resource groups for everything related to that project and you know it's kind of like an application in visual studio or, or a solution you know, the, everything goes under that one thing. So, so then when mm -hmm. it's time to go looking for, oh, my app insights or oh, my database or oh, all of this stuff, it's not spread out among multiple resource groups. And now you, it, it, it's, it's been hard for me to, without resource groups, find dependencies from this service to that service. And I ended up at one point getting in trouble because, you know, you, you have these services that run and you don't need them anymore and you don't shut them down. You know, yeah. and so now your 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 Azure 
landscape is littered with resources, some of which you might be paying for even though they're not on. Um, They're not being used. And they're not being used. Like, for example, if you create a VM and then you create a nice fast SSD disk for it, and then you say, all right, I'm going to shut my VM down. Well, guess what? You're still paying for that SSD drive because it's allocated. So you have to go. It's a whole new learning curve. So you have to go and create a, a snapshot of it to save it, save the backup, and then delete the disk. Who does that in the real world? Who deletes a disk? <laughs> I ha- Behind me, I have like all the hard drives that I've ever created in my life stacked up in my office, you know, because I'm afraid that someday I'm going to need something on one of them. I'm going to have to go to Newegg and get some sort work. of adapter to plug them in and search for stuff, right? It's like, yeah, ooh. but where's the, where's the index to pick that, that one disk that's third from the bottom? No, that has there's your no stuff index. On it. It's unless you create yeah. it yourself. Yeah. 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 And I, and I debate how many of those drives still function, you know, when they sit for a while. Mm. Some of them, some of them do. I recently went through a lot of them and yeah. uh, yeah. moved a lot of my stuff into cloud storage. Yeah. I mean, that's the big thing about cloud storage is somebody else is replacing the drives on a regular basis. Yeah. S- said the yeah. guy who pulled his rack this weekend and shuffled gear around. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Fritz says the Azure Forgotten Resources Wasteland. A new horror novel from Carl Franklin. <laughs> yeah, Laura, when Laurent Bonyan saw my picture of my rack, he's like, look, it's the Azure BC division. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring cash, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, you, don't, you forget how much overhead used to be spent, not just buying that gear, but maintaining it yeah. and upgrading it and so forth. If after you you know start playing around in here you, and you get that agility that you get to be able to move so quickly, like I don't see CI/CD pipelines as agility per se. It's just speed that gives you the you know opportunity to be agile. I also see CI/CD pipelines that just make a mess, right? Like that, there's no safety Absolutely. here. It's just a different kind of net. Mm. Well, and the movement to a cloud. What, what I call a cloud native application is there's everybody talks about what is what it's a cloud native application mm-hmm. right? and my definition of a cloud na- native application is that it is alt, it's, it has dynamic scale right and it, that dynamic scale has to go from zero to hero right where your your act it doesn't cost you anything and then as it grows your as your revenue curve grows so does your expense curve grow and if you can make the distance between the revenue curve and the expense curve be wide, you, that's profit. So mm. in the CICD pipeline and ability to, to put features out and capabilities and everything else, that is always a consideration for me. And I talk to organizations that want to move to the cloud and I say to them, well, the first thing you got to do is think about your business process. And to Carl, to your point about the resource group, I don't like seeing one resource group for the entire application because it tells me that 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 still is a monolithic app. What I want to be able to see is take the business process, decouple the steps through that process, and then build in a way where I could take out the entire vertical section of the app and the app will still continue to run. And then put it back. And now, now your deployment of the app is not just the whole app. It's, it's, oh, we're going to change this piece or we're going to change this piece. And then your development teams are totally decoupled from the entire business process. Anybody can put anything into their version of their app. 
because it's totally decoupled across the business process. So resource groups based on sort of resonance, areas of change. And you can use naming yes. conventions too, right? So if you have yep. the name of your project could be the first part in your resource group and then a dash to separate the other parts of it. So at least, yep. you know, when you go looking at resource groups, you can find the collection of them that work for this project. Yeah. What I try to always give that emphasis to is the facing the business. Even the API definition, when everybody says, well, what's an API? I go, well, the API must be, in my opinion, business faces, business focus. Because the business evolves slowly, but the implementation of the API is what changes all quite often. Mm -hmm. And I see so many organizations take a third-party API and integrate it into their application directly without any thinking and then down the road now their business atomic their verbs of the business domain are tied to this third party to a vendor yeah to the vendor and you want to don't you the business should be atomic it should be totally self-contained and talk to apis that it knows do you go as far as to make it cloud platform agnostic as well like that i could pick this up and move it to another provider i when i do application architecture it doesn't even have the cloud provider in it it okay. just talks about the services, right? And then once that is defined, when it's decoupled and once it's defined, you can say, okay, where do you want it to go? If right. it's going to go to ADF, AWS, it looks like this. If it goes to Azure, it looks like this. But the application architecture cannot have implementation in it, in my opinion. That's how I build it, right? I have to have an application architecture that has nothing to do with servers or VMs or sure. load balancers. And or my IP concern addresses. with that is often some of the best features in a given cloud provider are specific to that provider. Like you do have to architect to use that tool. Well, that's what interfaces are for, right? That's implementation. But to your point, Richard, to your point, that's a, that's why I like working towards Azure because the the platform services are already there. I don't have to worry about, oh, AWS, I got to spin up a few VMs. No, I just go to app service. Like app service in Azure is so underrated. You know, you can run a Docker container in an app service. Yeah. You can run mm-hmm. code in an app service. And there's one more, I've, I'm, I'm blanking on the third one, but there's three, I know there's three different things that you can run under an app service. It's, a, it's a, like the simplicity of just throwing up an API in an app service is just outstanding. It's just re- like people don't understand how, how powerful it is. And folks, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, Richard. Hi, buddy. You know, Raygun is our sponsor right now. And uh, just so happens that we have JD Trask from Raygun right here with us for the next few seconds. Hey, JD. Hey guys, how you going? We're great. We're we're really good. Uh, but I have a question. It must be on everybody's mind. Why would I use Raygun over, say, App Insights, which is you know built into Azure? Yeah. Well, firstly, I mean, I'd start by saying it, it's more important that you use something. You know, as a consumer of software, I want everybody to use something. For sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, App Insights, it's a good product. You know, it's part of the Azure offering. Not everybody uses Azure, and also a lot of those cloud tools, you know, they're good. They're not necessarily great. And what Mm. we're trying to build, you know, we are 100% focused on Raygun and what it is we're building here. And so you just naturally get a tendency towards a higher quality product, Um, you know. And so for customers where they need a little bit extra, maybe it's more detail, more insights, the ability to connect customers to the code issues, those sorts of things, they'll come to Raygun. But like I say, it's great just to start with something. Yeah, what I like about Raygun is just what you said. If I want to find something quickly, 
I don't have to go through screens and filters and, you know, is that what I'm looking for? Is that what I'm looking for? Yeah. So I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you do too, listener. Go to raygun.com for more information. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. And we're talking to our friend Richard about uh, this sort of lift and shift is not enough. That taking an existing app, plunking it into the clouds, not going to do the trick for you. And I'm going to play with a fancy new feature for Bullhorn to pop up Dave Aykroyd's question. And Dave's question is, uh, I know I should look this up on the Azure calculator, but is it cheaper to do a, a PaaS or function-based implementation versus infrastructure as a, co- uh, as a service? Have you actually done the math on this, Richard? So, you know, I I, I should pay more attention to this, yeah. but I don't because... <laughs> And the reason, and the reason why I don't is I think it, it is the difference between capacity and con- consumption, right? If I have to define a VM, I have to define the size of the VM at a certain capacity. It doesn't have an auto scale capability until you go to an availability set. And then you're just, it's this huge chunk of capacity that is being granularly upgraded, right? But, or horizontal uh, scale out, right? Right. But if I live on pass, the pass is just a knob. Is, it's just a knob, right? Yeah, it's a so, slider. So, the, and that's consumption, right? So, if I am consuming something and I need more of it, please give it to me because my revenue model should be based on that consumption, right? Right? Or have a have a tiered consumption model. But infrastructure as a service is always more expensive. In fact, it's a double-edged sword for most businesses when they move to the cloud because the app is using not shared infrastructure, but their own infrastructure. And some app, some businesses are going to find a very bas- bad bill because they realize that the capacity that they want is going to cost them directly to what they have. Yeah, and you're now responsible when you're implementing these as VMs in the cloud for specifying the resources for each machine and so forth. If you get any of that wrong, you're impairing the whole app. I would also say there's the additional cost of, and you're responsible for the care and feeding of the operating system again, the patches and so forth, rebuilding those VMs. So it's not just a direct cloud bill, but the additional labor to maintain those uh, VMs. Hmm. So, So let's bridge that to DevOps and IT operations, right? historically all businesses have it organizations because they have that shared resource to share but so where does dev what is how does devops fit into it organizations because devops is the literally the developers run the operations well not necessarily or at least they collaborate more you know that operations has a bigger role it has an interactive role yeah i i i understand that but if you're running on platform services and you want to and you have an automated ci cd pipeline which is mm-hmm. the end goal right yeah. if i'm a developer and i throw my code into the repo and do it into the main trunk the main trunk suddenly kicks it off and deploys and moves the traffic to that new world there is no it operations in there yeah it depe- depends on how your organization works i've got it automated that far but that doesn't mean the DNS swaps automatically either. It gets deployed and into a state where now we have a check. Is it running? Does the ba- do the basic benchmarks work? What's the uh, what, you know what's our full regression testing look like? Are we faster? Are we slower? So that we even know what to provision it. Who's monitoring the telemetry? For yeah. example, yeah. The app service though has this little feature called development slots, mm-hmm. and I can switch between development slots without any changing any DNS. 
Yeah, no, right. it's powerful. And, and, it's the only thing I wish with development slots is that it wasn't a swap. I wish I could say, you know, here's here's my development slots. This is version 15 of the app. This is version 14 app. And this is version 13 of the app and say, oh, by the way, I want version 15 to be production. And if it starts having a problem because it's the latest version, I can say, hey, make production 14 the, the production version. The swapping confuses me because now, you know, if when you do a swap, version 15 is 14 and 14 is 15, right? I, that confuses the hell out of me when every time I do it. But <laughs> what I love about development slots is that you can switch the traffic to the environment and there's no DNS configuration there. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, the other part of this is just doing constant integration where you, you're adding features dark and making sure they're healthy, even metricing them or, or AB testing them, just running them on a small amount of the workload and getting back that feedback to say, you know, this works this way. This is the overhead it's required. Um, you know, these are the problems we're having. Uh, it's, you know, it's a very different approach to software these days that we, we basically are doing an awful lot of really deep testing on our customers, often without even their knowledge. Well, I, what I what I advise corporations are when they're thinking about that is that the authentication and authorization mechanism of a user needs to manage the feature set that they're employing so that right. you can tell the customer, hey, I'm going to switch on this feature for you and let me know how it works. Yeah. That's a little bit different than testing in production. It we is, can yeah. slide traffic to an environment where 10% of the traffic goes to this other environment. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't say customer A is going to that environment or customer B is going to that environment. So I bake into the cross-cutting concern of authorization of every feature that I want that customer to have and then turn it on with the authorization capabilities to ensure that that feature is being used by people that are really interested in that feature yeah, and that's before where it becomes a mainstream Claims product. and before that roles became really important for saying this, this user gets this information and this user gets that um, for testing purposes anyway, especially hopefully that testing is your testers not necessarily well the i got that out there concept i got that concept i don't know how many years ago from an interview you guys did with a gentleman that said the uh, the authentic the authorization piece should be in code yeah this is the this is a code a token of what i want to do and this is the person doing it mm -hmm. send that off to someplace else to say can this person do this yes right. or no right and then have a return and if that says no Turn the button off. Don't make it visible. And never right? show and it. all that, and never show it, or have that feature, and that decouples the application code from the authorization and and management of the users and the and the features. It's a great feature of the um, Blazor component model that you have an authorized view, and around the authorized view you have authorized, and then some markup and not authorized and some markup. It's great. Can you do roles on that authorized? I don't remember yes. if you yes, can you put can. A, Yeah, I think you can, right? Yeah. Which is even better, right? Because then you can say, this role is authorized. Yeah, I mean, I wish you could do claims. I don't know if I've never done that before, but. Um, I'm sure, well, it's, a, it's, an, it's an attribute. Question. So you can code your own attribute. You could, yeah. Um, Jeff Fritz again, it's really hard to be cloud agnostic in our code. Azure functions require code references to their framework and needs a rewrite to work on a different service. How would you recommend improving that implementation? I mean, my first thought is, you know, if you can boil everything down to use this URL instead of that one, you can do it in configuration. But 
But if you have to call platform-specific code, I think the answer is an adapter, you know, the adapter pattern, use an interface. What do you think? My, my thought on that is it's the interface. The business has to rely on an interface that is not related to the implementation, right? And if, if you can have an interface, like say unlock door, right? What kind of lock it is, is part of the message that you pass when the door wants to be unlocked. So now you have to genericize things. Yeah. The provider code happens in the implementation of that. The business wants to unlock the door. The, how that door gets locked is an implementation detail as opposed to a dependency to the business. Yep. I've been in that situation before where you have to make a, a generic interface, but yet it has to work differently for different adapters. So now you're making base classes and, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe the way to do it is to, you know, add things as objects, for example, and do all that kind of late binding. But that that's nasty in and of itself. So you're right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I think they're free. That's for sure. Yeah. The, the, the one aspect that I want to touch upon, too, is it. this is all great discussion for greenfield applications. And I personally recommend to organizations, if you're going to cloud, you got to rethink your business process. And there's lots of examples there. But if you are going to do a lift and shift, what I've done before in that lift and shift process is I look at all the servers and list them on the x-axis. And then I say services across the y-axis. And then as I do each server, I check off what services it requires, right? And then once I have that matrix, I then look at how I'm going to move from a server mentality to a service mentality in the, in the technical roadmap of moving that application into the cloud. Often, though, that it's just not have clean lines of architecture that makes that easy, but it gives the roadmap on how to move from server to serverless. It certainly, it certainly helps without a doubt. Uh, Dan Aykroyd asking the question, can you add the framework requirements for functions the same way you insert secrets? Interesting. If they're strings, sure. Yeah. Cause they what could if just they're live not in, in, yeah, if they could live in the, in the key vault and you just make a reference to them. Mm. But well, an environmental variable in Azure or in Linux or whatever can point to the key vault as an abstraction layer. Mm-hmm. Right. Just a, Most people just put the value in, but you can also in the environmental variable say, hey, go go to the key vault and pick it up there. But in that string, once you have that string, can you use that string to invoke a set of functions? Like the idea that you, they would be different classes of functions running perhaps on different cloud providers. Like that's a pretty clever string and a pretty clever implementation to be able to show it. Well, the environment variable approach that Richard R. just mentioned is a good way to abstract those things away so that they don't need to be passed through the interface they're just you know the the implementation reads those variables and does the does what it needs to do i i often make a distinction between orchestration and imperative programming in the business process flow right and the way you build these applications in the cloud native is that you separate orchestration from implementation so this is lowry jawal lowry's world coming to me in that we build managers that handle the orchestration and we build engines that do the imperative programming bits. And I have found when I'm doing that, I, I get all these little composable bits of logic that do stuff. And the manager does all the 
the the implementation of the engine and then using ioc right where you inject in the engine now that engine the orchestration is independent and loosely coupled to the engine mm-hmm. so the business process lives in orchestration and the execution lives in an engine which could be implemented anywhere could be could could be whatever you want it to be as long as you inject the class that will then um exercise the code as it wants to in that regard yeah, no, that's that's fair, and you, you, the trick is you don't want to get into that. If this string, then that. If this string, then that. Like you, you actually want that that expression to function. That just yep. whatever's in that string, you can run that in some way. It, it goes yeah, like it, it, it executes on it. Yep. The other thing that I think is so important is observability here using platform services, and this really, again, I say. It needs to be thought of at the very start from the business context of how it wants to observe its application business process in the cloud. Mm -hmm. Because there's nothing that centers the conversation between business and technology when business says, hey, why is that yellow? And let the developers dive into the detail of that to find out why that's yellow, as opposed to the business manager saying, hey, it's not working right, right? The, the ability to come up with a dashboard that mat, that faces business is imperative in cloud native applications because it's not easy to debug a cloud native application because of the scalability and the, and the loosely coupled components of it. Well, we used to fool ourselves into going into the server closet and looking at the blinky lights on the server to say, oh, I guess it's working. <laughs> You can't really do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, especially when I you- miss hugging my server too, Richard. Especially a problem when you have different, you know, you have something that's not failing in in the dev, uh, you know, in the, in the dev area, and it, it is in production because, and in production, you're using a different provider, for example. Yeah, good luck with that. You really need application insights or or you know, a ray gun or something like that to to give you some and, insight and, into what's happening in real time. And you know the. The expertise of understanding how to do an application insight query is yet something I need to grasp. It's really true. Because <laughs> it's a totally, it's, it's a totally different language, right? But the depth of information that's there is astounding. Mm. The trouble with it is though, is there's so much noise that it's tough to get the signal that's out of right. it. And that too needs to be thought of before you build a cloud native application. One of the exercises I often do with the developer group is, Turn off all your your desktop debugging tools and just look at the logs and tell me what needs to be fixed. And if that isn't enough detail in the logs to tell you what needs to be fixed, your logs are not at a level that that are going to be useful to you right. when when you know the Eastern Seaboard doesn't work anymore, right? Yeah, I, I. How do you feel about stuff like Insights and Sentinel and like? Do you feel like the, the that? Do you have a good strategy for monitoring when stuff gets into the cloud like that? Well, the only thing that I have to say about Application Insights that frustrates me is that it sometimes lags behind, Yeah. right? In that it could be five, ten minutes. You're doing something and you want to look in the logs to see something about it, and it's not there yet. You got to wait, and that there is a dependency is really frustrating. Richard, there's a live view where you can Mm -hmm. watch what's going on, but but it's not with the the trace listener or the trace uh, manager. If you're using the telemetry client, you the live view um, is still going to take five minutes or so to show up. But if you're just using iLogger, 
in App Insights, mm-hmm. those things show up immediately when you go to. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. So does the so does the um, the telemetry client. It shows immediately in live view. Okay, near real time anyway. Like it's it's yeah. only just behind. <laughs> yeah, nothing's real time, right? As, some, yeah. as my good friend Sean Feldman, he always it's says, "Pretty to me, good though, Richard." There's mm-hmm. never real time. It's always near real time. Yeah. Near enough. Like, what do you care? Since we have a Blazor expert in the field here, mm-hmm. I'd love to bring up one topic area on Blazor in application development. Am I am I allowed to no, do go that? Go ahead. I am a real big fan of Blazor Server. And the reason why I'm a big fan of Blazor Server is that it challenges us why we move the application into a client browser. Like React. View, Angular, all that stuff pushes everything into the client app. And we did that for historical reasons because the web farm was a, you know, was sacred. Like our web farm needed to be as, a, uh, as offloaded as much as possible to save the, the resources in the web farm. But I ponder now because of cloud resources and because of services like app services, the backend scale has has severe scalability like it's doesn't matter how much put we put in the back end because the cloud is scalable if you compare the development effort of doing a blazer server app and avoid all the round trip yeah. latency requests from going from wasm right or even javascript to the cloud and back let forget about the security context I think you can do Blazor Server four to five times faster and have a much richer debugging experience because you're on the back end. And you don't have to build an API layer and all of that stuff. With a cl- yeah, like well, you still do, but it's different than than an HTTP REST interface, right? Yeah. You're not doing the serialization, deserialization, everything else. And I often ask a lot of devs, why are you building in the client browser? And they're like, what do you mean? It's 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 just what what you have to do. You have to mm-hmm. build it in the client. And I'm like, well, have you looked at Blazor Server? Because with a real-time connection, aside from just you know disconnected apps, and I, I got another argument for disconnected apps, but my argument for connected apps is if it's connected, what is the size of a Blazor server app on the client? What is it, 30K or something? It's like it's so thin yeah, Blazor that it's easily very, runnable on a browser. Yeah. It's easily runnable on a mobile phone. Yep. Everything's just HTML and CSS. It's faster too. And you're just dealing with small messages that are binary compressed in SignalR. And yeah, it's very, very fast. So my argument with organizations, and they often stare with me like I got a third eye in my head, is that don't build into the don't build into the browser. It's a dependency that you do not have control over. Right. But then what's the alternative? Well, you, the Blazor is kind of like, I call it, it there's, I don't want to say hybrid because there is a Blazor hybrid version too, but the the you know let's go back to silverlight my blessed child of silverlight <laughs> and using the xaml as a proper you know visual language for for the art it's close to that we got component development we have to live with the html html is in my world is just not an app dev platform it never was meant to be and we've we've continued to push HTML to a point where it's so far out of its realm in terms of what its original purpose might do. Mm-hmm. We are just in Blazor Server. That HTML is a very thin layer of right. the application, and the rest of it is all back on the server. And that's why I'm 
I'm so thrilled with that. And Jeff Fritz says, I might be paying very close attention to this right now. <laughs> He's kind of a blazer on, guy. <laughs> Think about it, though. It is like I, 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 the, the ability of the tools on the back end is so outstanding yeah. compared to trying to they do could, an F12 in a browser app. The constraint is the is the wire, though, right? It's It's how much load are we shuffling back to the server to do some processing to ship it back to the client again? I, I, that's all only, or there's only two things we, we really can't beat. And one is that we generally have a fairly thin wire between our edge device and the cloud and that the speed of light is tough to beat. Kind of hard. So yep. latency, total, I mean, bandwidth's getting great. You know, around here, they're starting to roll out 2.5 gigabit fiber, <laughs> symmetrical, no. right? Like, but that's a lot of porn. Holy man. <laughs> but you know, and, and your regular gigabit network, he's not going to even use it anymore because it's beyond what you can handle, right? Like you actually have to upgrade your network. You got to deal with two point five. That's awfully fast. That's that's but like latency still in milliseconds, and it is a wire, right? It's it is yep. a connection, and there's only so much room in that. My my only counterpoint to that, Richard, would be we have cloud regions around the world. Yeah. And we can test where the client is and We're minimize the latency because the, the control pane of Azure is worldwide. Yeah. Right? Theoretically. And, you know, and it depends on where the you back are. Ends at, the back end is at the highest network bandwidth you can possibly have. Yes, Dave. He said 2.5 gigabits. <laughs> it's obnoxious. And there, there's a speed test graphic. You're like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, again, says Blazor on Azure static websites is pretty cool. Yes, Jeff, I agree, and I learned about them from you. And mm -hmm. I can cache the API output from a function. You're talking me into considering migrating to app service. App Ooh. service is absolutely simplistic to manage. Yeah, and it, but it is interesting to think about. the Now you, you were talking about don't worry me about implementation, just work through the services. But the, here are details where it's like, am I building this in a way that will allow it to be a static site that can be shipped out to the to those far reaches of the cloud close to my customers as possible? As much static resources, as much CDNable content as possible. Like that is a very tricky piece of implementation. And I, I don't know, you've certainly had this experience. Often the customer asks for things they have no idea why, you know, what's reasonable, what isn't mm -hmm. like, oh no, we need it all to be real time. It's like, you don't, you need it <laughs> real, real time. It's got to be a hundred percent uptime. Yeah, the internet's not a hundred percent. So that's going to be a little tough. Right. You know, I love, but, I love your arguments when you talk about five nine. Five nine. You know what you're we talking five about? Five nines. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, tell AT&T. Wouldn't that. you rather have seven nines with seven? Well, I mean, my, my back in the day, and this is, you know, when we were still doing on-prem stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, five nines database limitation. Let me draw that out for you. Don't worry. It has a two comma number when we're done. And then it's like, now let me show you a three nines implementation with a warm failover that only has one comma in the price tag. And they're like, huh, one comma, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, they say, oh, well, well you know, we had an active, active uh, failover on the SQL Server cluster. I'm like, great. Can your application handle the four-minute outage to, to wait for the, the cluster to switch over? Come back up, yeah. Yeah. Even a hot failover on a database, minimum two minutes. 
Yeah. You know, how, how's your transaction connection holding up? Like they, it, nothing, none of this is as simple as you want it to be. It's not like, Oh, you wanted hundred percent uptime. That button's right over here. <laughs> Does it look like that? I'm going to say a favorite word that Carl's going to react to. Polly. Oh, I love Polly. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I showed that to a corporation of mine and they just went, they went cross eyed. Yeah. Because I injected the HTTP client into their code base and then put Polly on the HTTP client. And they were just like, what is this magic? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the, the policy was over on someplace else, right. right? Like I injected the policy in. Yep. Right. So if, so if the policy wasn't working, we just tweaked it and the whole freaking app changed because of the, the, the policy it, from Polly. Isn't it weird to think that Polly's just a wrapper around try catch? I mean, if you think about <laughs> it, that's what just, it comes down to. You look at the source code. It's like it comes down to a try catch, you know? Well, and a bunch of smarts. But it's on top what you that, do right? after yeah. that yeah. catch that that's the policy. Yeah. yeah. Don't just keep hammering away. You know, uh, and, you know, DDoS yourself because you keep trying over and over and over again, but actually being smart about try, wait, try a little, wait a little longer, you know, that sort of circuit breaker mindset. Like those are all the details Mm. that make all the difference in the world for that kind of thing. And you could have written these to yourself, but But why? Why would you? (laughs) Why would you? It's a solved problem. Yeah. Just, you know, put, roll out the tool and, and put it to work and configure it accordingly. So, Richard R., we could go on and on and talk about this forever, but unfortunately, all good things have to come to an end. So, thank you very much uh, for, for helping us understand these, these issues. You're welcome. I appreciate the time. It's, it's been a great time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.